Um, we have been in a series in Revelation and we are up to week five out of week seven. And next week we are doing week six, but we're going to do it a little differently because we're not, there's not going to be someone up here preaching and so you'll have to keep your eyes and ears open for, for how that comes out. Um, but this week we're going to look at the, the letter to Sardis. Sardis in Revelation 3. So if you've got your Bibles, flick them open to Revelation 3. So far we've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, we've looked at Pergamum, and we've looked at, I'm not sure how Tom pronounced this, Thyatira? Thyatira? Okay, pretty sure that's how the, the Greeks pronounced it. Thyatira. Um, and so we've really been looking at um, Revelation and seeing more of who Jesus is seeing more of who Jesus is. Each letter reveals a little bit more of who Jesus is, his heart for, for us and his church. Uh, and right at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, we're, we're given this idea that Revelation is written by Jesus. It's a vision from Jesus about Jesus. That really what John hopes that we would, the author of Revelation, John hopes that we would see as we read these letters and read through Revelation is more of who Jesus is. And so as we read this letter this morning, again, I want you to think, Jesus, who are you and, and how can I learn more about you and how can I see more of who you are? Because as we see Jesus, as we see more of who, we are, who he is and as we behold him, we become more like him. And so we've been saying this every week, seeing is becoming. Seeing is becoming. As we see more of Jesus, we become more like him. And uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold the glory of God, as we look upon his face, uh, we are changed from glory to glory. We, are be- we become more like him. And so really our heart through these letters and, and Jesus' heart through these letters is that we would see more of who he is. Uh, last week, we talked apparently about cake a lot um, and you'll have to listen. It was a great message. The proof's in the pudding. Um, it's great. <laughs> Pretty sure I got that right. I listened to the message and you can tell because I didn't get that right on purpose. All right, Revelation 3, 1 to 6. I love pudding. That's all I was thinking about when you were talking about that, Tom. Christmas pudding is coming. All right, Revelation 3, have you got it? Good. One person has it, so let's read together, Tracy, shall we? All right, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, would you give us that ear to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning? God, would you help us to to lay aside the things that that are not of you this morning, the voices that are our own and the voices of those other things in our world that might um, deceive us or distract us this morning and help us to, to lean in and tune in to what your Spirit is saying to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a few years ago, it was a few years ago, it was before um, Alana and I had any children, and it's when, and and I remember 
we didn't have children because I remember the cats had a cat flap into our house uh, and they were loved and fed and watered and um, I'm joking, we still give them food and water. Um, but we don't have a cat flap anymore. Um, but I remember that we had a, it was a different house, different story, different season of life, all that. Um, but we had these cats and we still have these cats. Uh, they were beautiful things. Um, but our... Our cat, and, uh, and the more I've lived with cats and the more I've had cats, the more I've realised I'm not a cat person. Um, and I'll probably never get a cat again. To be honest, like, I'm, I'm going to keep it alive and I'm not going to do it any harm. You don't need to call the RSPCA on me or anything like that. I'm not condoning any violence towards cats. Um, I've had plenty of people that have offered their services uh, in that regard but politely declined. It's hard as it has been. Anyway, that's beside the point of the story. Uh, we had these cats and, um, and Ashton, one of our cats, uh, a male cat, um, would always bring in uh, animals. And if you've had cats, you know this is, this is how it goes. This is part and parcel of having cats and why we shouldn't have them and we shouldn't be allowed to let them outside and, um, and all these things. And I totally agree. Um, and so the cat would constantly bring in animals and always alive, like really uh, dead, like birds, frogs, um, obviously mice and rats, uh, to, to Alana's disgust. Um, but one day it, it came through the cat flap and you could always hear when it was bringing in an animal because it would come flying through the cat flap and it wouldn't make a noise and you'd just hear it scamp because it's got something in its mouth and it can't talk, not that they can talk, and it brings the the animal right up to us all the time. It's like, it's part of like the cat's thing. It's like, I, I've brought you dinner. Ta-da, let's feast. And um, this day it brought, and it had a goldfish, like a whopping huge goldfish in its mouth. And the thing is about this goldfish is that we don't have a pond. We don't have a fish tank. In fact, our neighbours all around, I've looked over their fences after this, I said, who's got a fish tank or a pond where's this goldfish none of our neighbors have ponds so this cat has brought this fish from who knows where um, I know they've got a pond down here at the at the what's the hotel called the best western the the king avenue in I mean and we live sort of like within a k of that I suppose so maybe he got it from there anyway he brought this fish in and we thought oh this is a goner like how how many how long has it been out of water for how dead is this fish and so he gets the fish and he drops it, and sure enough, the fish starts. And you know, um, that's not always a sign that a fish is alive. Um, in fact, I was watching some videos yesterday of, of some apparently dead fish, um, fish that people had put in their oven to bake, and they'd flapping about like. You, you should watch. You should search YouTube. Dead fish still. Alive, whatever it is, something like that. It's, I mean, it's enough to freak you out, you know. These, anyway. So we put it in a bucket of water, and it survived. And we kept it for, I don't know how long, uh, or how we kept it without. Anyway, that's not. I can't remember that much. Um, but it reminded me of, you know, how in this letter, John writes, "You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead," and how sometimes fish have the opposite thing, like they. They look alive, but they're dead. They, they look like they're flapping about, and if you've caught a fish and you've filleted a fish before, you know that when you're filleting them and when you're gutting them, they can still just like, they can go crazy, but they're not alive. 
they, they look alive, but they're, they're dead. And I think, um, as Christians, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his church. It's like, you can look alive. You can flap and you can kick and you can do all the right things and, and, and look like you're, you should be swimming, but put you in water, there's no chance for you. You're actually dead. You're actually dead. And so what I want us to, to think about this morning is just a very simple phrase, don't look alive, live. Don't just look alive, live. Don't look alive, live. And as I read this letter um, to the Sardis, maybe as we read it even together this morning, you're thinking, wow, that's a heavy letter. There is not much good in that. And you're right, there's not much good. Sardis is not um, a church that is kicking goals in Jesus' mind. It's a church that is dead. Uh, he doesn't say that they're sort of going down the wrong road of false teaching or immorality or anything. They're just, they're just flat out dead. They're flatlined. They're, there's no hope. They're dead. And so I want us to look at this letter. I want us to be challenged and convicted by it, but I also want to see the encouragement that Jesus offers to the church at Sardis. Because with every letter, even when it is a letter of rebuke, there is just this seed of hope that Jesus gives every church. There's this seed of hope, and so let's see how it goes. So the first verse, of course, always reveals a bit about who Jesus is and and who he wants to show himself to the church to be, and it's sort of like the answer to to their problem in a way. Uh, So he says this in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Sardis uh, was uh, a city in the... In the, in the area, and so these cities were sort of all, all relatively close to each other. Uh, and Sardis had its best days behind it. It was sort of uh, living and resting on its laurels in a way that it's, it, it had a great history. It had a great amount of wealth and it had a great amount of success in its city. And so it was into a, into a season of decline and decay. Um, it had great, uh, a great climate. It had a great position um, to defend from invasions. It was sort of perched on, this, on the side of this hill and had massive cliff faces and a wall and it was very easy to defend. Um, but it had a reputation for, for apathy and immorality. This is the town itself. And so that's the town in which there's a church that Jesus writes a letter to and you can already see that the, the characteristics of their town sort of represent what's happening in the church that Jesus is confronting. And then Jesus reveals himself in this way. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you've read the Bible before, you might be thinking, seven spirits of God? Like, I've heard of the Holy Spirit, but what are the other six? Why don't we ever preach on them? We should do a series on the seven spirits of God. Um, Again, when we read Revelation, we have to understand the figurative nature of it and the the, the pictures that it's painting. And, and just as um, John writes at the beginning and he talks about these seven churches, they're not, the letters aren't literally for seven churches. They're for the complete church. And the representation of the number seven is, is to do with wholeness and completeness and um, all-encompassing. And, and in the same way, when Jesus writes, I hold the seven spirits of God, he's, he's saying, I hold the completeness of God in who I am. The complete Holy Spirit, the complete um, uh, or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he has the ability to give the fullness of the Holy Spirit to the church, the complete church. So he holds the complete or the fullness of the Holy Spirit and he holds the the complete or the fullness of the church in both, uh, both at the same time. 
So Jesus is the complete authority over every spiritual power, over every spiritual being, but he's also the complete authority over every human power, over the church as well. And so Jesus says to to Sardis, I have complete authority. I have the ability to hold everything. Everything starts and finishes with me. Every spiritual being uh, and every earthly being. He holds it all. He rules it all. He controls everything. Nothing is out of his sight. Nothing is out of his control. And that's really important for the church at Sardis, that they hear that image of Jesus, that he is a powerful God, and that he has the Spirit of God. He has the Holy Spirit enabling the Sardis church to, to have life. And then he goes on in uh, continuing in verse uh, 1, after he's revealed a bit who he, who he is, he says, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. A reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And I think that's just a, a funny thing to think about. Um, it's like, oh yeah, I know this person. They've got a reputation, you know, of like living, they're, like they're walking around and talking, but I mean, it's a facade. They're not really, they're dead. Um, just the imagery of that, that you can look alive, but you are dead. Um, it reminds me of um, Adam and Eve right at the beginning of Genesis and how Adam and Eve uh, were created in the image of God. They were walking with God in the cool of the evening uh, and then God says, don't eat this fruit or you will surely die. You will surely die. And what happens? They eat the fruit. They eat the fruit and then what happens? They don't just drop dead, but something happens. It says in Genesis 3 verse 8 to 10, so they ate, eat the fruit and then this is what happens. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so what happens to Adam and Eve as they eat this forbidden fruit is they don't physically die. It's not like their life disappears before them but spiritually the connection they have with God dies sin causes death and not in the way that we often think about death it causes death in a much more uh, eternal sense and the challenge for us is the the trees that Adam and Eve were hiding behind I think um, could represent things of religion things of duty things of uh, that look alive but are actually dead. And so what are the trees of religion or what are the trees of routine or what are the, what's your cover for God? Because Adam and Eve wrongly thought that, that God was looking for perfection, but he was looking for intimacy. He was looking for them. He was looking for their heart. Religious routines are not what God is looking for. He is looking for someone to, to walk with and to talk with. And so just like Adam and Eve are, are spiritually dead, we can walk around looking alive, looking like we're doing the right things, saying the right things, but inwardly we are dead. Inwardly we are disconnected in a way that we should be connected. It goes on and says this in verse 2 and 3, which will help us make sense of this idea. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you've received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. A few weeks ago, um, we had a, um, some people around at our house. Um, I think it was for the grand final and all the, we had a whole lot of kids there and, and playing. And uh, In our backyard, there's a big tree 
and um, Harry loves climbing this tree. He climbs it all the time, and so we built. I built a little platform in the tree, like a sort of like a treehouse, but with no walls, no sides. It's very safe, um, as you're about to find out. You can see what's going to happen. And so he climbs this tree, and he's climbed it probably a hundred times before. And this day he climbs the tree, and he falls out. And he probably falls from about you know roughly about my head height, just above my head height. Um, and comes crashing to the ground and, you know, there's, there's tears and screams and he's sore and, and, and sorry for himself. He's fine. Um, but something changed that moment. For him, the tree was now something to be fearful of. For him, the tree was not something that he would just race up and climb. In fact, he's probably only climbed it two or three times since that day. And every time, he is very tentative. He's very careful to climb that tree because he knows the danger that it now... Um, it now has. Before, he was oblivious. He was ignorant to the danger. But now he is, if you would like, um, you could say he is awake to the danger. He's awake to, to what might happen if he climbs that tree and doesn't concentrate and doesn't pay attention. And I think in the same way, we can go through life and just be completely ignorant to the dangers of not living in step with the Spirit and not being alive the way Jesus wants us to be. And Jesus would say, wake up. Look around. There is something that you need to be paying attention to. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's, it's not going to end well. It's not going to be good for you. Wake up. So Sardis, even though um, their city was easy to defend, you know, we talked about this idea that they were sort of on a, on a hill and they had these cliff faces, they had a wall. Uh, it was a really easy place um, to, to defend from an invasion. But twice in their history, they had been invaded and, and conquered because they were not watchful, because they were not paying attention to the enemy. They sort of thought, ah, it won't happen to us. Couldn't happen to me. I mean, we're, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We've got, a, we've got a good wall. We've got a good cliff. It won't happen to me. We won't get invaded. They'll go for an easier target. But twice they had sort of fallen asleep and the enemy had taken, taken over and defeated them. And the same way Jesus is writing to the church, wake up. Don't, don't stay asleep. Don't, don't miss what God is about to do, what God can do through you. Wake up. See what God is doing. Don't get caught in religious routines. Sometimes we can mindlessly go through religious routines. We can just come to church. We can sing a song. We can read the Bible. We can go to a small group. We can serve on a team. We can do all these things and it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But inwardly, there's no life. There's no life. It's like outwardly we look like we're alive. All the routine's there. All the religious activity is there. But inwardly, there's something not at work. There's something not happening. And what I think Jesus wants to challenge us and encourage us with this morning is where is God at work? Where do we see God's hand at work? Join with him where he's working. Don't just go through the motions. Don't go through religious routines thinking that that's what he's after. He's after proximity. He's after relationship. He's after someone who will walk with him, who will join him in the activity that he is already on. I want to read you another passage in John, John 5. And verse 19 to 23, it says, Jesus gave them this answer. So Jesus has just healed a man at the pool of Bethsaida. And he says, um, and, they've been, and it was on a Sabbath. And so the religious leaders are like, you can't do this. It's a Sabbath. It's illegal. Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, the Son of 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. But the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. So you will be amazed. But just as the father raises the dead and gives life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. So what's interesting here is that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I, I'm arrested by what the Father is doing. Whatever he is doing, I'm joining in on. And whatever he's not doing, I'm not, I'm not joining in on. Wherever the Father is at work, Jesus is also joining in on the Father's activity. The Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God is always at work. And I think Jesus command and Jesus' encouragement to us is wake up, see what God is doing, see where he's at work and join in with him. If he's not at work, if he's not blessing the thing that you're joining in or the thing that you're doing, the religious activity that you're doing, forget it, move on and join with him. Jesus is the one who gives life, not the things that you do, not the routines that you get into, not the religious activities that you depend on. Jesus gives life. Life comes from relationship with the Father. So when we're living and doing what the Father has in store for us, we find the life that Jesus designed for us. So where can you see God at work? Where can you see the Father at work in your world? What is he doing in your family, in your workplace, amongst your friends, in this church, in the people that you talk with and meet with? Where do you see God at work? I think Jesus would say, join in with me where he's working. Join in with me. Don't miss it. That's where life is. Jesus desires relational proximity, not just our religious activity. Right before Jesus talks about this idea of joining in with the Father um, and only doing what he sees the Father doing, He says this as well in verse 17. He says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. There is never a moment where the father is not at work. I think sometimes we can walk around our Christian life and think, Oh, I can't see God doing anything. I can't see him moving. It's like I'm talking to my friends about him, but there's just nothing happening there. I'm going to work, but I can't see God doing anything there. God's not doing anything in... The ministries that I'm serving in, it just seems to be the same old, same old. Jesus says the Father is always at work. The Father is always at work. And it's up to us to see what he is doing, where he's at work, and join in with him. Not just do the religious things, the routines, the activities that we've always done, thinking that, well, it worked 10 years ago, so it's probably going to work today. It's always worked, so it should work today. When I was a teenager, this is what worked for me, so this should work today. When I went to church and when I got saved, they were doing this. So that's what we should be doing. Jesus is saying, no, don't get caught up in the religious routines. Where is the Father at work? Join in with that. Join in with where God is at work. The challenge for us in our pursuit for routine and predictability is to stop certain activities where God is no longer pouring out his blessing and favour. 
We're creatures of habit. We love routine. We love predictability. And God sometimes has a way of rattling our cage and saying, I'm not, I'm not involved in that ministry. I'm not involved in that thing, that style, that movement, that moment anymore. I've moved on. There's something else I want to do. I'm sure the point of Jesus um, healing the man at Bethsaida was not for us to also take everyone who was sick to Bethsaida, to get them on a plane and go over there and say, well, that's how Jesus did it, so we should do it too, that way. No one's saying that. No one's preaching that message. And if they are, no one's listening to it. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I saw my father at work in that moment. I saw he was doing something, so I joined in and I did what he was calling me to do. Next week, I'm not going to do that because it's probably not going to happen the same way next week. Something else is going to be working. Something else is going to be moving, and I'm going to move with that. I'm going to keep in step with the Spirit. What worked 10 years ago won't work today. God uses different tools, different methods, different styles at different points throughout history to accomplish the same thing, to bring people to Him, to bring people into a relationship with Him. So Sardis, as a city, was looking back on its success and not paying attention to what was current, to what God was doing in the here and now. It was saying, oh, but we used to, we used to, we used to. So don't fall in love with the religious activity. Fall in love with the move of the Holy Spirit in your life. Where is the Father at work? What is he doing? What is he blessing? Get involved in that. Don't just look alive, live. And then verse 4 of this letter. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. That phrase, soiled their clothes, I mean, just from reading that, it's like, ugh, that sounds gross. <laughs> uh, and you might think, oh, it's about, it's about purity, or it's about living holy or, or blameless, and, and it's not really about that. It's soiling, soiling Soiled clothes is really talking about just, just a life of sin in general. Not one, um, not one of righteousness and holiness symbolized by the white clothes later in the verse. And so how, how might we live with soiled clothes? How might we live um, soiling our clothes? It's a gross thing to think about. Hopefully you don't literally do that. I would say that everything that's not of faith has the uh, potential to be this sort of activity, this sort of lifestyle. You know, in, um, I think it's in Romans, I didn't write the verse down, Romans, uh, Paul talks about, he's talking about eating different foods offered to idols. And, and at the end, I think it's chapter 14, you can check it out. Uh, and he says, whatever's not of faith, and basically his point is, you know, for, for you, not eating the food is a sin, but for you, it's, it is a sin. Like, there's different standards or different convictions that the Holy Spirit's Holy Spirit gives all of us. And so sometimes we like to put our convictions onto other people. And, and Paul is saying, that's not really the point. The point is this, whatever's not of faith is sin. Whatever you're not living in community and, and doing what God is calling you to do, that's when it's sinful. You notice in the New Testament, the, the rights and the wrongs, the rules, the, the lines that you're to cross and not cross, that are so clear in the Old Testament, they're spelled out, there's so many hundreds of laws. In the New Testament, they're just like, it's just so grey and beige. It's like, Jesus, what, where's the line with this? Where's the line with this? And Jesus is saying, it's not about the line. It's about your heart. It's not about your religious activity. It's about relationship with me. 
And when you walk in relationship with me, when you listen to my heartbeat, you'll live the right way. You'll live with faith. Sin is living with religious activities, thinking they are what God wants, rather than searching the heart of God and getting involved in what he's already doing. Without the Spirit, without keeping in step with the Spirit of God, we might look alive, we might come to a church, we might be in a church even like this that's doing all the right things, that from the outside people might say, oh, they're doing great. But inwardly, it's just religious activities. There's the Spirit of God is not at work. John 6.63 tells us the Spirit gives life, and in Romans 8.6 it tells us that uh, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And so life that Jesus desires for his church comes from the fullness of the Holy Spirit that he talks about himself holding at the start of this letter. Life comes from the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. To the one who is victorious, like them, will be dressed in white, and I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I love this. This is the the seed of hope that Jesus offers the church at Sardis. You are dead. You're looking alive, but you are dead. But I can write your name in the book of life. You can't write your name in the book of life, but I can. And it points back to what is written in verse 3, where it says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. I don't know about you, but when I read this letter, and I think, you look alive, but you're dead, wake up, strengthen what remains. It's like, what does a dead person have to strengthen? What kind of weights is a dead person doing? What What hope does a dead person have in strengthening anything except for Jesus, except for the life giver, except for the spirit of God? And so you are dead. You're looking alive, you're doing all the religious activities and inwardly there's nothing there. The relational proximity that Jesus desires is not there. So strengthen what remains. Wake up. Let the spirit of God revive you. Let the the hope of resurrection come into your life. Strengthen what remains. And so you might be sitting here this morning thinking, I don't have much hope. I feel like, for me, it's just religious routines. It's just activity. It's not relationship. There's no life. Outwardly, I look like maybe I'm doing the right things and being the right person, but deep down, I feel like it's, it's dead. There's no life. And Jesus would say, I hold the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I'm willing and ready to give it to you. I'm willing and ready to revive you, to strengthen you, to wake you up, to help you live a life of fullness, of keeping in step with the Spirit. There is hope for those that are holding on to the past, thinking that that's where hope is, or mindlessly living in religious routines. Jesus wants to revive that which is dead. Breathe life, speak life, give life. And so this morning, you're just a, a dead man walking, a dead woman walking, looking alive but not living, doing the things but have no idea where, the, where God is at work. 
No idea what is actually blessing. Just hoping that you're doing the right thing. This morning as the, the band's going to come back up, I'd love to pray with people that feel like they're in this season of life where the letter to Sardis is just the words of Jesus directly to your heart. If you feel like you're, you're looking alive but inwardly you're dead, then this morning the hope is this, that Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and he's ready and willing to pour it out in your life, to revive that which is dead, to strengthen that which remains. And so as we sing and worship this last song, I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. I'd love to, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, to give you life, to show you where the Father is at work so that you can join in with him, so you can walk in step with him. So let's stand and let's pray together. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that you are alive, that you're a good God, that we can trust you, that we can walk with you. And God, you give us a seed of hope, no matter how dead we might feel or how dead we might be. And God, this morning I pray that these words, wake up, would echo in our mind. That would be prophetic words that would enable us to, to open our eyes and see the Spirit of God to hear the voice of God and to walk in step with you. God, we don't want to get caught in religious routines or predictable activities, but God, we want to walk in step with you. We want to fall in love with the move of the Holy Spirit. And so God, would you revive us this morning? God, we love you. We honor you. We thank you for this moment. Jesus' name. As we sing, if you want me to pray for you, please come forward.